Hello and welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. My name's Darren and I'm here with Faith. Hi. Pastor Faith. And we will get to the sermon in just a little bit, but we wanted to make some time and space to talk about something special that we've been having on Sundays. And it's a new song that Pastor Faith, you and your husband, Josh, wrote, and we've shared it with our community. Tell us a little bit about it. What's the name of it? Yeah. And where did it come from? Yeah, so it's called We Need You. Um, and I, I'm going to root this in 1 Corinthians 2 when Paul says, My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Um, the, the first thing that was written for this song was the beginning of that bridge section that says, We don't need better plans. We don't need clever thoughts. We need your Spirit, O oh God. We don't want the wisdom of man. We want we want a display of God's power, which is really what the world needs. They don't need to see a show, or even in the area of worship, they don't need to hear good music. We need to see a display of the power of God. So it came from that heart cry. And then the beginning of the song kind of sets up this space where we invite Holy Spirit, we open our hearts, we clear out all the distractions, the things that get in the way. And then just simply cry out for more of Him. And it's this this longing to be a, a space where the Spirit would rest mm-hmm. as a community. Yeah, I love that. That's such a the heart and core value of Garden Church. Exactly. Knowing that the Spirit is present, like He's welcome to the party and we get to celebrate. And I so appreciate the beauty and creativity that you've been cultivating, not only with worship, but just something that we can invite the rest of our community into. And, and it's so cool when, when uh, in the recording of this song, it's the first time that we shared it. And it's like people have been singing it for weeks. <laughs> and it was just such a cool thing to experience. And so we're so happy for those of you that have experienced that with us on a Sunday morning. And we want to see just more original songs being birthed from this place. Um, that you're talking about, just being saturated in the Holy Spirit. So we are welcoming you to stick around after the sermon where you can hear a live recording of the song, We Need You, and I hope it blesses your heart. Welcome to the Gardens Podcast. This message titled Doing the Stuff was given by Darren Roundson and is the 19th in our series, The Kingdom. Hi, my name is Darren. If you are new, I'm one of the pastors here trying to find my Bible. If you need a Bible, raise your hand. There's some Bibles around the side, but we need a Bible today. Um, If you need one, raise your hand and we'll pass one out. Otherwise, pull them out. Go to Mark chapter 6 and we'll jump in uh, just to give us kind of a Man, um, let me warm myself up first. Uh, first service was amazing. It was fun. I'm ready for second service. My heart is uh, definitely into this message. And if you are new this morning, this is a perfect message for you to figure out what the heart of our church is about. Um, we're, going at Ma- we're looking at Mark chapter 6. I don't know if I said Matthew, but Mark chapter 6. We are in the, se- in the middle of a series called The Kingdom of God. And we are wandering through... The Gospel of Mark, verse by verse, defining for everyone what the primary message of Jesus Christ was all about. He said, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe this good news. And so we are going through, verse by verse, 
articulating and defining what it means for us as followers of Jesus Christ 2,000 years later to live in that reality, that, that his kingdom, where, where Jesus announces the reign and the rule of God is here. It's at our fingertips. And, and we've learned through, through the, this series that as we've been defining it, Jesus is using the Old Testament as, as kind of a frame of reference where there was this promised age that was to come and that God's Messiah, God's suffering servant would come and bring this new age and that age would be marked by healing, by shalom, by peace, um, by, by the resurrection of the dead, by forgiveness of sins, by all the things that we see Jesus doing in the last five chapters. We see Jesus teaching about this kingdom. We see him um, talking in parables, but we see him demonstrating the kingdom. He, he heals the sick. He casts out demons. He, he forgives sinners. He, he, he does all of this stuff. He, he restores creation. He has authority over the winds and over the seas. And we see him inviting followers, inviting people to do what he's doing, to believe and to participate in this kingdom, in this reality, this thing that we're trying to define. And it's so difficult, yet um, it kind of pops up all over the place. And so that's what we're doing this morning. We're just looking at a couple of verses today. I'm going to do a little bit of a Bible study and talk about what this means for us today. Um, but I want to catch us up. So last week, Mark chapter 5, it was the end of the chapter 5. And uh, what we looked at is Jesus embodying this kingdom that he's talking about. If you recall, there was a woman that had been suffering for 12 years with the same condition. It was a physical illness. She was bleeding for 12 years. She spent her life's resources on trying to fix this problem because this problem wasn't just about her being sick. This problem had to do with her being disconnected from the worshiping community that was in Israel. You see, if a woman in Israel that was part of the, the people of God, if, if she was bleeding, she was considered unclean. And if you were unclean, that meant you could not participate in the ceremonies that were part of your regular acts of worship with God in the temple court. She was not allowed to participate that, in that. In other words, she was, she was disconnected from God. And this woman spent 12 years of her life longing for healing. And she had this reality, she had this, this view, that, if, that she believed that her faith, she had the faith, the kind of faith that she could just, if she could just reach out, and touch the cloak of Jesus, that the power that he's talking about, the message that he's speaking of, that there's something about, if she could just reach out and grab it, that something would happen and she would be healed. He didn't have to pray for her. He didn't have to touch her. If she, if he could, just, she could just get close enough to touch the, the hem of her cloak. And that's what she does. And she's healed immediately. And Jesus knows what happens. And he's surrounded by a crowd. And he said, who touched me? You see, for him to be touched by a woman who's marked as unclean meant in that, in that society, in that culture, that he was now considered unclean. But he's a rabbi, he's a prophet, he's a priest. He's, he's soon going to be announced the Messiah. He's considered unclean, but see, that's not what happens. Jesus tells uh, this woman, or he says, who touched me? And this woman, recognizing that she just broke a, a, a taboo, cleanliness laws were broken. She's not supposed to be near people with being marked as an unclean person. And uh, uh, Jesus says, uh, um, daughter, it's a word that she's never heard in a long time because 12 years, she's not a daughter of Israel anymore. She's disconnected. He says, daughter, your faith has saved you. Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. 
Go in shalom. Go in the wholeness of your identity, of who you are. Leave now. Enter back into relationship with God, into the community of God. Go freed from that false identity that defines you as sick. That's the power of the kingdom. It's the power of Jesus. And then he goes on, and it's just kind of a side note, but this 12-year-old girl dies, and he just says she's sleeping, picks her up, and she's alive. So in Mark chapter 5, we see this power encounter where we see the, the demon with legion exercised, and the whole town is afraid because all of a sudden Jesus just healed this man that nobody could bind, and, and it, it messed up their economy because 2,000 pigs died. That's a different story. And then he, he heals... He heals this woman of a 12-year-old disease, and then he, he raises the dead. And then we get to, to Mark chapter 6, and we'll pick up the story, and we'll talk through what the kingdom looks like in Mark chapter 6. So go to Mark 6. I know you're there. I'm going to find it eventually. Here we go. I'm going to uh, just read through this first section, and then we'll talk about the next section. But it says this in verse 1. He left that place where he healed that woman, that little girl. And he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. On the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astounded. They said, where did this man get all this? What is this wisdom that he has been given? What deeds of power are being done by his, by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and, and brother of James and Judas and Simon? And not his sis, are not his sisters here with us? They took offense at him. Then Jesus said... Um, to them, prophets are not without honor, except in their hometown, and among their own kin, and in their own house. And he could do no deed of power there, except he laid his hands on a few sick people and cured them. And he was amazed at their unbelief. So, Jesus, doing all of this stuff, all these miracles, all of this hype coming around his name, people following him, he goes home to the synagogue where he probably grew up, and he preaches this kingdom of God. He preaches this reality. Now, it would have been really hard to take, because if you recall, the, the message that he's saying, it, it's been prophesied years before Jesus begins to talk about it. People had a lot of expectations of what this kingdom of God would look like. If you remember, we talked about um, in, 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 um, uh, later on in the Israelites' history, uh, when they already had a nation, they had kings, and then the Babylonians came in and made them their slaves, and they were, they were, they were um, slaves in a foreign country, and the whole nation of Israel were slaves. And uh, they, uh, <coughs> they begin, prophets begin to rise up, in, and this is thousands of years before Jesus. Prophets begin to rise up and begin to reimagine what God will do, and they talk about this kingdom of God. They talk about this new exodus that God would come in like he did before and bring this whole new way of life. It was much anticipated. It would be marked by what I already said, shalom and peace and healing. And Jesus says, hey, that is here in your midst. That power, that authority, that, that promise of healing, that promise of restoration, that promise of forgiveness, that is right here. And he gets up to his friends that probably would have known him when he was a younger kid. He gets up to the people that watched him as a stonemason or as a carpenter, the, the language is, um, can go both ways. And they would have recognized him. And rather than accept him, they reject it. They can't believe what he's saying. They're offended by him. They don't believe him. They are, uh, they are uh, marked, excuse me, but they're, they're, um, they're, they're distracted by the fact that he's just the son of a carpenter. 
Or he's just the son of Mary. His brothers and sisters are here. How could this be what God's about? You see, and I think that just the one point in this section that I want to make is uh, uh, Mark is writing to a group of disciples. 30, about 32 years later, when this event happens, the gospel writer Mark writes to the church that's found in Rome. And um, the church in Rome is experiencing heavy persecution. Disciples are literally being killed for confessing Jesus as Lord. And Mark has to write the disciples, those that said, hey, I believe in Jesus, I accept him. Those that go to church on Sunday and sing hymns and songs. He has to remind his followers what it means to really follow Jesus because somehow they've already forgotten. 30 years later, the disciples already forgot to be doing what Jesus was doing. Isn't that weird? Obviously, we don't relate with that. It's really, it's just their problem, an ancient problem. But he has to remind them of what Jesus was all about. And so you see a theme all throughout the book of Mark, that Mark kind of plays on this theme that those who should get Jesus, those who should get the kingdom, the Israelites, the people of God, those who should get what it means to have faith, the disciples, they don't get it. The hometown, in the synagogue, they should get who, what Jesus is all about, but they don't get it. They don't believe. And, and one of the themes is that the people that shouldn't get it, that should have no clue whether or not uh, this is reality, whether what Jesus is saying is true, the people that would have the hardest time of following a guy like this, like somebody like a Gentile who has no recollection of, of a Messiah or, or Jesus or God or Yahweh or, or someone that lives um, outside of Israel, maybe in Decapolis, maybe someone that's even possessed by a demon, who knows? Or maybe someone living in tombs or living with pigs, unsacred animals, according to the Jews. But people like that get Jesus more than the disciples and the people of Israel. Isn't that weird? 30 years later, Mark has to make a point that the disciples aren't getting what Jesus was already about. And so my one point on just this first section is that um, we see that Jesus doesn't perform any big miracles. And I I would say this, the the greatest obstacle to faith, and I think this is true today, the greatest obstacle to faith is not the failure of God to act but it's the unwillingness of the human heart to accept God when he comes as a carpenter and as the son of Mary. I'll say it one more time. The greatest obstacle to faith is not the failure of God to act, but the unwillingness of the human heart to accept God who comes to us only as a carpenter or the son of Mary. Those of us that seek guidance on what we should do, what jobs should we take, we pray, God, give me a sign, give me a sign. And then a friend encourages us, I really feel you should take this job. But we don't receive that, do we? We can't take the community affirmation and guidance as an answer to prayer. We take the signs and the wonders. We can't see God in the midst of the normal because he looks too familiar, right? Are you with me on that? All right, now let's get to the good stuff. Well, that's good too. Um, <laughs> Mark seven or Mark six, verse seven. Um, so, uh, verse seven. I'll read this together. Uh, then he went among the villages, teaching, called the twelve, and began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over unclean spirits. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except a staff. No bread, no bag, no money in their belts. 
but to wear sandals and not to put on two tunics. He said to them, wherever you enter a house, stay there until you leave the place. If any place will not welcome you, and they refuse to hear you, as you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they went out and proclaimed all that should repent, that all should repent. They cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and cured them. So Jesus begins, and he calls his followers to him. He calls his disciples. Now, go to um, Mark chapter 3 real quick. I just want to catch you up to speed. Mark chapter 1, Jesus calls his disciples. We'll, we'll get to that in a second. Mark chapter 3, um, he, he, he commissions his 12. And it was very symbolic. I'm not going to get into the details, but if you look at verse 13, Jesus goes to the mountaintops. And in verse 14, he says, He appointed 12, whom he also named sent ones, apostles, to be with him, to be sent out, to proclaim the message, and to have authority to cast out demons. So in chapter 3, the disciples don't fully know who Jesus is yet, but, but, but Jesus calls 12 apostles. He says, you guys are going to be my guys representing the nation of Israel. And you're going to have, uh, this is what you're commissioned to do. You're commissioned to be with me. As followers, we're first commissioned to be with Jesus sent out to proclaim the message and to have authority or demonstrate the message that we're talking about. Those were, that's what they were commissioned to do. So we see that in chapter 3. Now we're in chapter 6. So Jesus calls those same 12, and he began to send them out two by two with these specific instructions. He ordered them to take nothing for their journey except the staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and um, not to put on two tunics. Okay. Um, I love the background. I love getting into the history. So in order to kind of go forward on this, I'm going to get a little nerdy on you, and I'm going to give you some background. So three things I want you to write down. This is going to help us interpret what's happening and help us understand what's going on behind the story and why um, uh, first century people would have interpreted what's happening as something else other than what we might receive it as. Okay, so first of all, would you agree with me? Jesus is operating as a rabbi. And Jesus is a Jew, and he's a teacher that has followers, like called disciples. That's what rabbis did in the first century. So point one, Jesus is operating as a rabbi. In rabbinic culture, it was very common for rabbis to have disciples. And it was very common for rabbis to pair his disciples together in groups of two. There was a saying that predates Jesus' ministry in the first century by famous rabbis. And one of them says this, um, he says, this is one of the famous rabbis, he says, acquire yourself a rabbi, he's speaking to disciples, acquire, acquire yourself a rabbi and get yourself, yourself a haver. Acquire yourself a rabbi and get yourself a haver. Say it with me, haver. Haver. One more time, come on. All right, haver is a Hebrew word for a male disciple who partners with another student to enhance his learning experience as a disciple. In other words, he's a study partner. Um, so in the ancient Near East culture and the practice, the rabbinic practice, what you would do if you were a disciple is you would first hopefully be uh, under a rabbi, and then you would find a haver, a study partner. And the whole point was to enhance your studying, which was if you had a scroll and you had the Old Testament, you would debate your views and, and different philosophies and theologies of Yahweh. And you would, you would do that with your study partner. Another rabbi predating Jesus, 
said this, this is interesting, about the haver, the, the students studying together. I love this. This, again, predates the New Testament. When two sit together and exchange words of Torah, that's the Old Testament, the divine presence, Yahweh, dwells among them. When two sit together and exchange words of Torah, the divine presence dwells among them. That was predating Jesus. Now, how many of you know Matthew 18, 20, where Jesus says, where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am with them. Jesus is redefining the rabbinic life, the rabbinic practice as a rabbi. And it's important for us to know that sending out or or having disciples grouped in twos was just a common practice in the first century. So Jesus is doing what everyone else is doing, basically. Cool? That's point one. I just like that stuff. Do you like that stuff? I do. So you can be a nerd and a learner with me. Um, Second point. Go to Exodus 12, chapter 1, Exodus 12, verse 11. Okay. Again, this is some history, and I love giving the history because it makes it so much more uh, deep. So Jesus, um, if you recall, when we started this whole series a long time ago, we talked about Mark writing in the lens, through the lens of the Old Testament. So if I tell the history to you, it goes like this. Genesis 1, God creates mankind and earth, all of that stuff. Genesis 2, it's perfect. Genesis 3, some sin comes in, and, and all of a sudden, everyone's dis, uh, distant from themselves, from community, and from God. And from Genesis 3 on, God is in this process of redeeming, restoring, renewing all of creation to himself. That's called the mission of God, the Missio Dei. Got that? Got that? Okay, we got it, good. And then he goes on, he selects Abraham, selects the nation of Israel, says, you'll be my people, a kingdom of priests. Um, uh, uh, or before he says that, he selects Abraham, but then they go to Egypt, and then become slaves in Egypt. Remember this. So the, you, you've seen all the movies, Let My People Go, Pharaoh, Pharaoh. And so they're in Israel, or they're in Egypt as the Israelites, praying to God. God sends them Moses. Moses frees them. But right before he frees them, he gives them um, these instructions. This is the night before Egypt, uh, Israel is released from Egypt. And listen to the, the, the urgency in Moses' instructions to the nation of Israel. Verse 11, this is how you shall eat. He's talking about this meal they're going to eat. Your loins girded, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it hurriedly. When, when, when Jesus says in Mark 6 gives them specific instructions of what to wear with the staff and the sandals. Any first century Jew or anyone that was Jewish in Rome reading this letter from Mark would immediately be pulled back to the story of Exodus. Why is Exodus so important? Here's why. So they're freed. They, they get their land. Um, they're in the wilderness for a while. They get their land. They want some kings because everyone else has kings. So they get a king. Then uh, the big thing is, hey, we've got to be obedient. They're not obedient. What happens? Babylon comes back into the, or comes into the picture. And the Israelites in the Old Testament are enslaved again to a, a foreign nation. Do you, do you know this? The Babylonians come in and they enslave the nation of Israel. And it's here where those prophets, Jeremiah, Isaiah, other prophets, Joel, prophesy that God would come and bring a man who would redeem us, who who will restore the nation of Israel. And it's going to be like Exodus. It's going to be like what happened when Moses came and freed us from Egypt, but it's going to be far greater. It's going to be like anyone who's oppressed anywhere will be freed. It's not just about Israel, but it's about the world. And so when Isaiah and Jeremiah talk about that, 
they're talking about this new exodus. And when Jesus gives this urgent message to his followers, to the Israelites, he's reminding them of the urgency that, that the Israelites had in the exodus. It pulls you right back. All right, you got that point. The instructions link us to exodus. Last point in this little section. Um, again, thanks for the detour. I'm glad you took it with me. Uh, there, um, Jesus sends off his followers to, to basically rely on the hospitality of the villages. So he's supposed to stay in the house when they get there, and when they leave that village, they'll go somewhere else and stay in one place. If no one accepts him, wipe, basically show a testimony of, 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 of the, their lack of acceptance. Well, you know, there was another group of wandering philosophers that were famous for this in the first century. They're called the cynics. It's where we get the word cynic, cynicism. And it's a Greek word that means dog-like. There was a group of philosophers, it was a, a, a kind of a philosophy school that came up in, third BC, in the third BC, third century BC. And um, I'm sorry, yeah, third century BC. And uh, they, they, they came up, but then they died again, but then they arose in power and lots of influence in the first century, the same time that Jesus is sending out his disciples. And they were known for being pests. They were pests. They were, they were called dog-like for a reason. It's like being called rats, okay? And these cynics, they went from, ha- from town to town preaching this perspective of God and the world. And they would go in relying, begging people for money. And they would go in and say, basically, in a nutshell, the world is going to hell in a handbasket and there's nothing you can do. Woe is me. Woe is you. We're all screwed. But they were a pest all over Israel in the first century. They were famous. And so when Jesus gives his instructions, it's, it's like the, anyone that was in the village would have been anticipating these disciples to be a lot like the cynics, but they're not. The first century cynics were very different from the first century disciples. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Verse 7 and 8, it says this. But go back to Mark. So those were a quick background, and I promise it will make sense in the end. Quick background. Uh, now here's verse uh, 7. He says, he called the 12 and began to send them out. So he's, he's sending his followers out um, two by two, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And I love what Mark says. So they just went out and they proclaimed that all should repent. That's what they did. And it says that they cast out demons and they healed the sick. Done. Now, um, are you guys with me right now? Okay, this is where it all, for me, gets good. Jesus sends out his followers in chapter 6. Let's go back to chapter 1. Chapter 1, we have James and John. We have some fishermen. And they're fishing. And Jesus, as a rabbi, says to these fishermen, come follow me. He says to these fishermen in that culture, hey, I'm a rabbi. You've been left out by the religious institutional system of of growing up people that are the religious elite. You were never good enough. You're, in fact, fishermen. In fact, you're like the bench warmers to the bench warmers on the JV team. That's what a fisherman was to the rabbinic practice and and the, the institution that was set up. Jesus says to these bench warmers, I believe that you can do what I do. I believe that you could be like me. 
Not just know what I know, not just talk the talk. I believe that you can come follow me. And that means, as a rabbi, I believe that you can be just like me. That's what Jesus said to these nobodies, these benchwarmers, these simple fishermen in the first century fishing. They didn't have the formal education, but Jesus said, no, 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 I'm going to take you. I'm going to take some tax collectors. I'm going to take some misfits. And all of you are going to come together, and you're going to learn to be like me. Chapter 3, he appoints them. He appoints them to do the stuff that he does, quite simply. Cast out demons and proclaim the message. Chapter five, it's very, or chapter four, it's very clear, if you remember this, that the disciples have no idea who Jesus is at all. Do you remember this? He calms the storm. They're so terrified that they say, who is this that even the winds and the seas obey? Do you remember that? Their, their, their faith They have no faith in him. They're trying to shake him and wake him up because they're about to drown. And they don't know who's in the boat with him. They question, who is this? Chapter 5, they see some great stuff. He's rejected in his hometown. I'm sorry, chapter 5, he heals some people. Chapter 6, he's rejected. And then later on in chapter 6, Jesus says, now go do the stuff. Just go. Go do it. But here's what's fascinating. Despite their faith, despite their their theology, despite their intercultural studies of how to communicate the gospel in the right context and not offend people but invite them in and and all the details, despite their lack of education and the lack of talent and their lack of experience of casting out demons and healing people, what do they do? They do it. They don't come back and say, hey, Jesus, uh, we memorized in Greek and Aramaic um, what it means to be sent out. Yeah, in fact, we got all of us together and we started praying about what this means and reading and and looking at different interpretations of what it means to be sent out. Great job, right? No. That wasn't the commission. They were sent to do. They were sent to do. Their message is the same message that Jesus had. The kingdom of God is at hand. The resurrected life is here. The promise of healing, the Messiah, the Savior, all of that is at your fingertips. Align yourself with this new reality. Align yourself with God breaking into this world here in our midst and live in that reality here and now. And that means repent. That means to align yourself and then become a participant. Follow me. As I follow this Messiah, this rabbi, come and be a participant in this new reality. Go and do Go and do. Go and do. It's chapter 6. They don't confess Jesus as the Messiah until chapter 8, a couple chapters later. And they're doing the stuff. Yet, if I examine the church today, if I just pulled back, Do I see a group of followers of Jesus or do I see a bunch of wanderers called cynics? Do we walk into towns with the authority of Jesus Christ, God in flesh, and the power of the kingdom of God, or do we wander around condemning, judging, apathetic, ignorant, lazy? Do we study it or do we do it? You see, this is what I thought when I started reading this message. I was like, man, this is quite, 
the easiest message I'd ever have to deliver. It's simply this. Jesus says to do something, all right, let's go do it. And if you're new, you've never been to the garden, well, this is what we're all about. But somehow in the midst of figuring out what we're all about, we've forgotten to do, right? You see, I, I was just thinking about this, and, and it, it, it's quite baffling. It's quite scary to me because I wanted to know how many of us feel that we have the power and authority of Jesus Christ in our everyday lives. I think some of us, we would confess with our, our mind and our hearts that Jesus has been resurrected from the dead, but we don't live in the power and reality of the resurrected life here and now. It's a great hobby. We can sing about it on Sundays and maybe we'll show up to community group but definitely don't want to serve there because that's a little awkward. But at the end of the day, our lives are not radically transformed to do the things that Jesus did. I just looked and this broke my heart. If you want to know if you're following Jesus, ask yourself these questions. I'm just going to list some stuff. Are you feeding the poor? Are you welcoming in the strangers? Are you using your anger righteously? Are you not lusting anymore or using manipulation as a way to get what you want? Are you not allowing your, are you allowing yourself to say yes and let it be yes? Are you going the extra mile? Are you loving your enemies? Are you giving to those in need? Are you praying for the kingdom of God to come on earth as it is in heaven? Are you fasting? Are you forgiving? Those that harm you again and again and again and again and again. Are you worried about your life as to what you're going to buy, what you're going to wear, what you're going to eat? Are you, are you seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness? Are you asking and seeking and knocking? And when it doesn't come tr true, are you asking? Are you seeking? Are you knocking? Is that part of your life? Are you being perfect like the heavenly father is perfect? Are you building stuff? on the rock that will last for eternity? Are you living in a way that when Jesus comes back once and for all, you just keep going on living? Or are you living in a way that when, you, when he comes, all of a sudden you're surprised because the stuff that you built your life on is no longer there? Are you a doer of the word or are you just sitting around talking about it? Those are just three chapters in the book of Matthew. Five, six, and seven of Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount. You see, and I go through Mark, and it's he lives, he lives in the identity of his belovedness. He, he's tempted, and he doesn't give in. He, he preaches the kingdom. He gathers, gathers disciples. He, he heals the sick. He, the, he touches the leper with compassion. He heals an entire town. He, 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 he touches paralyzed people and says, you're forgiven of your sins and has kept you from everything that God wants from you. He's given, re, he's re-identified people and given them new identities. He's healed legion. He's touched women that he unintentionally touched, and they're healed. He embodied the kingdom of God. He sends out his disciples and say, you can do this too. Do the stuff. I look around and I see complacent, apathetic followers of Jesus. And, and this isn't for everyone. This isn't a condemnation because I just did this through my life. And I, I see the Bible. I read the word. Not every day, but why not every day? If this is true, why are we not living this every day? When people look into the church, do they see the resurrected life or do they see a bunch of people complaining? I wish we had nicer seats. I wish there wasn't a smoke-infested environment. I wish they would do this. I wish you'd be a little hard, less hard on me. I'm doing the best I can. I wish the other worship leader was singing. I wish the old guy was preaching. <laughs> Bill Doctrine, love him. I know it's heavy, guys, but I can't help but preach the word today. This is the word for us.
You see, I, I reflect on the cynics and the disciples. You see, cynics, they preach, disciples demonstrate. Cynics, they, they judge, disciples, they share the good news. The cynics, they, uh, they study the word. The disciples, they, uh, they go out. You see, the cynics, they talk about it. But the disciples, they do. And if I could be completely honest, and this is what broke my heart this last week as I was prepping this message, I examine my life and I look a lot more like a cynic than a disciple. And that hurts. I walk around perfectly content with powerlessness, with no authority, struggling with the same old junk. Maybe you can relate. And I, and I look out to the world and I see the city and I, I read the statistics and, and I think the city needs more disciples that live in the authority of Christ and in the power of the Holy Spirit than ever before. And yet we're so content being cynics that want to just hang out together rather than live it out and do. We're content with just writing a check that's not even generous. We're funding that great program. or more concerned about our vision and our dreams and our kids and our white picket fence than embodying the kingdom of God. That is the good news. Man, that's the good news. And it's become so dull because of what our lives look like, what my life looks like. We, do we pray? Do we pray? Really, do we pray every day? If we're, I'm sorry, this is for those that call the garden home. Forgive me if you're confused. Do you pray? Do you pray with your spouses? Do you read the Bible? Do you read, wash your wife with the word of God? Like it says in Ephesians 5. Do you live in a way that if people looked in, they would say you're the same person when the lights are off and nobody is home as you would be on Sunday with your best dressed outfit? Or do we struggle and stumble and fall apart because we have the f- a false identity? We struggle with the same pornography addiction. We ask the same accountability questions because we haven't gone any further. We don't even know what it means to not have greed or envy or to live generously or to even embody any of these things. We just know how to show up on Sunday, read a little bit from, from someone else, and call that Christianity. That's not Christianity. That's cynicism. Forgive me if this is your first time and it's too harsh. This is how it's going to be. You see, this is why I say this today. 90% of our city does not attend church on Sunday. 90% of Long Beach does not attend church on Sunday. I know a lot of us live in different places. 90% of the city does not attend a church, a, a church where the words of life exist, where healing can be found, where God of all creation can burst out from the seams, from prayer, from worship, from a message. And yet, we're, we're, are we bursting at our seams? No. We're celebrating the press telegram, but at the end of the day, that is not what it means to be a church that's growing. It means when we go out and we represent Jesus Christ, and people can't help but see and touch our cloak and be healed. You'd rather have Facebook ad, ads grow the church than be empowered by the disciples, be empowered by Jesus as a disciple. 90%, that's terrible. How do we change that? We change it by just embodying, by just doing it so easy. Just do what it says. This isn't condemnation. Guys, if you're feeling a weight of guilt like you need to do more, well, there might be some spirit in that, but honestly, it comes out of your belovedness. First, you're accepted as you are, not as you should be. But then he calls us into something far greater. Are you with me? 
There's a couple of other numbers that really broke my heart. 20% of the city lives below the poverty line. 20% of Long Beach, about half a million people, live below, for a family of four, $22,350 a year. Some of you are visual. I don't have a visual for it. I'm going to say it like this. For a family of four, the poverty line is living at $11.60 an hour. For a family of four, 53% of the families in Long Beach are single mom families. 53% of the families in Long Beach are single mom families. Of that 53%, 30% live below the poverty line. One more statistic. One out of four kids under the age of 18 live in poverty. One out of four. If our church does not exist to change those numbers, our church should not exist, period. Are you with me on that? Let me end with this. Um, You know, so you hear this, you hear do, and we don't do. We're just going to walk out and grab a bite to eat and go on our busy week. You ask, okay, Darren, how, how do I live in the power and authority of Jesus? Well, the only way I know how to do it is by reading the word, by praying, by doing what he says, and obeying his word when he speaks to you, being obedient to calling. If it's to plant a church, go, call, go plant a church. If it's to minister to the wealthy because you have this business that's thriving, go do that, but do it beyond what 10% would say. Do it with your entire being, that Jesus is embodied in every deal that you do. Every deal you have is Christ all over it. If you have, if you journey that way, you'll stumble across power and authority. I guarantee it. You'll pray and things will happen. Your words will be heard by God. He will train you in the asking of the desires of your heart. he, He wants to empower us to ask whatever we wish in his name and for that to be given to us. That's the goal. But we gotta be trained in our asking. You know, Jesus had a lot of power and authority. He demonstrated it. What I love is in John chapter 13, and this is for everyone here. One, we've got we to recognize that a lot of us aren't living in the power and authority. We're not doing what Jesus asked. Two, is what do we do with that power and authority? What do we do with excess of resources, relationships, spiritual power, where God just happens to heal people when we pray or gives us prophecy. What happens when, when all of those things begin to happen? Well, we, we model what Jesus did. John chapter 13, listen to this. Verse uh, one, Jesus knew that, that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Jesus also knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and he had come from God, and he was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took, out his, uh, took off his outer clothing, wrapped a towel around his waist. After he poured water into a basin, and he began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with a towel, and wrapped the towel that was wrapped around him. Jesus recognizes that he came from the Father. He was returning to his fa- the Father. The mission is almost complete. He's got to go to the cross. God gives him all power and authority, everything on earth and heaven, under his power, at his disposal, and he pulls himself away from the community, takes off his clothes, gets on his knees, and he washes his disciples' feet. What do you do with power and authority? You give it away. It's not for you. 
Your money's not for you. The money's not for the church. It's to give it away. Your, your resources, your talents, your heart, your passion, everything that God's giving you, it's not for you. It's for the world. And if we don't live in that reality, then we're not living as a church. And I, it's not just my community group, but I recently had a poll of all the community groups that represent the heart of our church, community groups. And for those of you that keep coming and you're not in one, you need to get in one, period. If you're going to be a part of the garden, you've got to be a part of a community group. But people that keep coming, these community groups have been fighting to get people to serve in their rhythm of life. They can't pe- get the whole group to show up and serve on mission. What does that say about the garden? Well, it says we look like cynics, not disciples. At the heart of it all is what we do with what God's given us, and that's to give it away. If we want to be participants in this kingdom of God that I'm talking about, it's a, it's a kingdom of servants. You're called to become foot washers. And if that's not what you signed up for, if that's not what you're practicing here today, well, I think a lot of us have good old-fashioned repenting to do. And that's what I want to invite you to. I'm going to invite the, the worship team to come up. <clears throat> Thanks for hearing my heart in this message. It's, uh, I, I, was, I was reflecting on the reading and researching the details and implications. And it's just heavy when you see your life and you're supposed to be a proponent of, of Jesus and the gospel. And, and I, get, I get paid from the church to do it. And then I see the, the list that I just listed. I'm like, man, I'm so far off. But by the grace of God, maybe I can just take one more step forward. Maybe just one more thing. God, may, I, I know my identity is beloved. There's no condemnation in Jesus. If you accept Christ, he loves you as you are, not as you should be. But then he invites you in to be a player in the kingdom, wherever you are, to participate, to do the stuff that Jesus did. That's the type of church we need. And I believe many of you are like me this morning. And we look at the cross and it's convenient. It's a good symbol. It's a good illustration of what happened, but our heart no longer breaks. Our heart no longer breaks for what this represents. We look at people, and we, we see plenty of homeless people. They come in. They might annoy us. They might ask for money, but our heart doesn't break for the numbers. Our heart doesn't break that the church has been identified by a poll saying the number three, top three things that people looking from the outside in on Christians are, number one, anti-homosexual, number two, judgmental, number three, hypocritical, not lovers, not doers, people with power, people with authority. If that's you this morning, I just want to invite you to respond. Here's the cross. I think the posture we take is that of a humble servant. I'm going to put this here. And uh, I'm not commanding. I'm just simply asking. I'm going to clear out some of these seats. This is communion. We call it communion. This is a cracker. This represents the body of our Savior who died on that cross. And this represents His blood and the sign of forgiveness and the sign of a new covenant. And we take this symbolically remembering what he did, but also symbolically remembering what he told us to do. Where are you this morning? Are you stuck in chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 6? Are you a disciple or are you a cynic? I just want to invite everyone that says yes to Jesus. I know this is awkward. Some of you, it's the first time. You all look really pretty and great. The women look pretty. The men, you're looking handsome and dapper. 
you got your Sunday's best. We need to get on our knees, I think, and sit before the cross and with the, the symbols in our hands, rep- repenting of our lack of doing. So I want to call you forward. So let me pray. Jesus, thank you, God, for your word. Thank you, Jesus, for not telling us what to do, but showing us what to do. Thank you, God, for forgiveness. That it's not that you look at us condemning us or upset or even disappointed. You just invite us into more. You invite us into more, to becoming more ourselves, to becoming more of what you look like on earth, becoming people that, that have the capacity to dream bigger than we could possibly dream, the, type, the, time, the kind of people that do what you said to do. Jesus, I, I pray that our heart would be repented. We repent. We let go of our apathy. We let go of our pettiness. And we'd find ourselves at your feet at the cross, embracing you. We pray this in your name. Amen. So come on forward. Let's get comfortable. I cultivate. Thanks for listening. If you would like to hear other messages from the garden, or if you would like to find out more about the Garden Church, check out our website at thegardenlb.org.
Jesus.